Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded remotely from Mountain View, California and Los Angeles, California. Don't forget to check out our other episodes and please enjoy the show. In the academic environment where I was working in Amsterdam, we had connections with scientists in the United States. We were on early primitive internet-like networks. And there was a culture of sort of someone writing a cool tool and sharing it. And so Mm. I just followed the general guidelines of that culture. And one of the sort of innovations was that you would put a license on your software that allowed people to use it, but didn't allow them to sort of steal it or claim that it was their own. That eventually became open source. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today we'll be speaking with Rivers Cuomo, lead singer of the band Weezer. Weezer's breakout hit, Undone, the sweater song, was one of the biggest era-defining anthems of 1990s rock and laid the path for an immensely successful career. Fifteen albums later, Rivers spends much of his free time writing computer code using the Python programming language for multiple apps he's developed. Also joining us is the very computer scientist who created the Python language, Guido Van Rossum. Python's influence cannot be understated in that it underpins everything from Instagram and Google searches to complex data science in astrophysics and bioinformatics applications. In addition to being described as enormously intuitive, What sets Python apart is that it is open source and continually being updated by a vibrant community of programmers. The title of today's episode on the podcast is Come Undone, Revolutionizing the Digital Age with Open Source Coding. Hello, Rivers and Guido. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. Hola. (laughs) So, Rivers, one of the great pieces of 90s rock and roll lore, in my memory anyway, is when... Immediately following Weezer's breakout success, you ducked out and enrolled at Harvard. You know, never mind that it usually goes the other way around with where dropping out is concerned. But I I had a subscription to Rolling Stone at the time. I was a sophomore in high school. And I want to say they printed a picture of your student ID, maybe. And yeah. anyway, I, I remember thinking, A, what a badass, and B... What happens when his classmates figure out who he is? Are there any interesting anecdotes about that time you would care to share with us? Well, nobody figured out who I was until like the last day of sophomore year. (laughs) Um, It's it's hard to remember, but uh, like I wasn't famous myself at all. Like kids knew the band Weezer, but... I wasn't any kind of celebrity and plus I grew a long beard and had long hair and mm. kind of like I do now, but it just, I didn't bear any resemblance to anything anyone associated mm-hmm. with Weezer. So I got through the whole year um, just being some random 
old right. guy because at the time I was 20, 25, I think, and in class with 18, 19 year olds. Mm. So they just thought I was some weird old guy that was auditing the class right. or something. But at the very end, uh, just before I left- were you, were you living in the dorms? I, at that time, I wasn't. Um, I was living off campus. When I, I, I came back, I, I, I took many periods off and then came back and finally graduated at age 36. But when I was in my 30s, I, I did go back and live in the dorms. That was super fun mm -hmm. and convenient. Wow. Wait, I interrupted you though. So you said towards the the very end, what happened? Yeah, like the the last week of school, <laughs> I remember being in music class and and just you know like letting the conversation go to like, oh, so what what were you know where what are you gonna do during the summer? Oh, uh, we're going on tour with no doubt. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and you know, then minds were blown. It was fun, but yeah, I would I would be like. I would be in class with people in Weezer shirts and they, they wouldn't know who I was. That's crazy. That looms large in, in my memory of rock and roll mythology for whatever it's worth. But, um, but your first experience as an undergrad on the West Coast included a lecture that inspired the song we're talking about today. So could you tell us about that source of inspiration? Yes. So... I f moved to LA right after high school, no intention of going to college. I just wanted to try to make it in my metal band. That fell apart. I met the guys in Weezer through my job at Tower Records. And, and we were plugging away, but it, it wasn't didn't seem to be catching fire with, with the local uh, music fans who were, who were really into grunge at the time. So I started, I, I applied to mm -hmm. LA Community College and the very first semester I had an English 101 class and the, the professor was trying to explain the importance of a thesis statement and how it's kind of like if you take a hold of a thread in someone's sweater and they walk away, the entire sweater will become unraveled. And your thesis statement is like that, holding on to that thread mm. and you got to hang on to it through your entire essay. And I, I just thought that was a super intriguing, inspiring image. And I went home and, and wrote a song basically mm. <laughs> pretty much using his, his uh, words for the chorus. Have for, you ever reconnected with that professor since it became a hit? Uh, no, I, I didn't. It was kind of on my to-do list and <laughs> I definitely should. Yeah. And so this was the first song you wrote for Weezer. Is that right? Yeah, might be. I mean... I I had been in bands before. I was usually the lead guitarist, like the shredder guitar player. I didn't sing or, or write any anything besides riffs. Um, mm. So I kind of set a goal for myself. Like, I'm going to write 50 songs mm. where I, it has lyrics and I'm going to sing and it's going to be my thing. And I was writing and writing and probably the first one that really stuck and ended up on the first Weezer record was the sweater song. But given how big a, a a hit this was, did it give you a, like a false set of expectations? Yeah. <laughs> I actually gave myself a deadline right. and I thought of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, made, made they made Pet Sounds. I think it came out when he was 23. And by that point, he had already had like 20 number one hits and this was like his masterwork. So I figured, man, if I can't even get a record deal by the time I'm 23, uh, I'm just going to pack it in and go back to college. Um, but and then Weezer got 
got their record yeah. deal like two weeks before I turned 23. Thank God. So, uh, but then, yeah, the first album was a big hit and uh, I definitely thought the second album was going to be a huge hit too. I knew it was a little more challenging, but I, I figured mm -hmm. it's even closer to, to my heart and this is what the fans really want. And turns out I was wrong <laughs> and music, mm. things changed as they always do. And people got interested in a very different kind of music. I think ska became very big and, and female fronted groups and then um, mm -hmm. electronica. And like, we, we, we actually became even more mm -hmm. indie rock on our second record and, and totally disconnected from, from the zeitgeist. Yeah, but here we are 25 or 30 years later, and Pinkerton is lauded as one of the greatest records of the 90s. Well, the, the, um, for some people, that's true. Um, but yeah, it definitely gets a lot more cred than it did when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I um, another thing in my head when the first record came out was, was there ever a set of circumstances where like you had a tussle with a record executive, you know, that insisted including the sweater song in the title. Like the band comes in, you say it's called Undone. He said, we got to have sweater song in there so the kids know what it is. No, I, it was originally called Undone. And it was long before we got a record deal. We were just playing in clubs. And right. after every show, somebody would come up and say, hey, I, I like the sweater song or I like that song about the sweater. And it just seemed like, well, we kind of have to put that somewhere in the title. But yeah, I, I didn't like parentheses. I never liked parentheses in song titles. It just seemed kind of ugly. Yeah, so I, I made the choice of, of using a dash instead of parentheses. Yeah, well done. Those things are so important to you when you're 20, a 23-year-old artist. Well, they, they say God is in the details. Or they say God is the details. <laughs> um, and in coding, that's certainly true. No kidding. Right. And not only are you uh, incredibly prolific, but you have this organizational prowess. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today with coding? Because I understand that that started with uh, a spreadsheet habit about 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, I feel like I kind of missed my calling a little bit. I was like probably like eighth grade and... I got a hold of a TRS-80 computer and I spent a summer with it and I absolutely loved it. And I was trying to program a game, but computers were just too primitive back then and I couldn't get it to do what I wanted it to do. And around the same time, I got a guitar and, and, my, and my road forked into heavy metal. And it wasn't until I was 45 that I was just looking for a hobby. I had some free time and I wanted to take up a a new hobby. And I, I was afraid of computer programming because I thought it involved a lot of math. I'm not really sure why, but I was never that interested or good at math. And I didn't want to do a lot of math, but I just searched online for like a fun course to take. And, and this course came up, uh, CS50 Harvard Intro to Computer Programming. And I had the Harvard connection and I knew it would be held in a lecture hall, you know, right where I used to go. And I'd see all the kids that will remind me of my time there. And I just tried it out and it was super hard. It took me three years to get through this one semester course. But by the end of it, I was just totally addicted to programming and finding that I enjoyed programming the tools mm -hmm. to help me do the music work more than actually doing the music work. So I 
had to put myself on a bit of a diet. So like, all right, <laughs> I'm gonna after five or six hours of programming in the morning, yeah. I'm gonna, I got just gotta stop and then go back to my day job with music. Does it scratch the same creative itch as writing a song? Um, it's a little different. Uh, what I really love about it compared to music is when you're done, you kind of know if it works or not. There's nothing subjective about it. The Finally, the program works and it does this magical thing for you, like a little fairy or genie. And, and mm -hmm. it's so exciting. You can show it off to people and there's just no denying that it works. You can always improve it, but at least I know mm -hmm. I've reached my goal. And with music, when I'm finished, I never have that feeling of, of satisfaction like, Maybe, maybe for a time, I feel like, oh my God, this is so great. I've really expressed myself. But then anyone can say like, ah, I don't like that song. I don't get it. Or, you know, can get a, a 0 0.2 in Pitchfork. Or, or, <laughs> or, uh, or at the same time, it, I could write a song that it's okay. It's just not that great. And then something blows up and it's a huge hit. It's like, what, what do you make of that? It's like, it's hard to get that same feeling of completion mm. and, and satisfaction. Yeah. Well, can you connect the dots for us a little bit? Because I know when you... Oh, also, they complement each other in the sense that by the time I'm done programming for five or six hours, it feels like a huge relief to start working on music and work working emotionally and purely instinctually and emotionally at the piano. And it's it feels like a real catharsis at that point. Mm -hmm. But then when I wake up the next morning, I, I, I'm ready to just be more logical. Sure. So they kind of feed on each other. And if I understand the trajectory correctly, somewhere around 2000, 2001, you started organizing your songwriting ideas in spreadsheets. And that was what kind of offered a, a clean bridge into the coding world. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's right. So even before that, say in the 90s, I would make, try to, try to keep track of things on paper in notebooks and yeah, then around 2001, I got a laptop and I discovered Excel mm -hmm. and I started keeping track of everything in there. That eventually led to Google Sheets around 2006. Mm. From there, I tried to start writing more complicated formulas mm -hmm. to automate things. And it was really fun, but man, it's, it's a tough language to program in. It's, mm -hmm. The interface is super difficult. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that was one of the things that encouraged me to, to look into um, trying a computer programming course. And that was, um, and that's where you first got introduced to Python? Yeah. The first six weeks were C. Ouch. <laughs> which is incredibly difficult. And yeah. And then, and then they switched to Python. And at first, it, it, at that point, you're like, wow, I've finally kind of gotten used to C. Now they're going to switch to this other language. I have to start all over. This is going to be a nightmare. Mm. But within a few days, it, it, it was, I was just amazed at how you can just kind of think and speak and write in plain English. And, mm. and you have this incredible power over the machine. It will do all kinds of things for you. We pretty much stuck with that through the rest of the course. And by the end of the course, I was writing programs that were helping me and the band in our day-to-day -day activities as a, as a touring posse and, and then also as creators. I've heard that. I've heard that when people first, when they have some exposure to coding and then Python comes into their world, it's like they imagine what it would be to be a, 
a violinist who gets to play a Stradivarius for the first time. Like it's like, Mm -hmm. this just feels really good and well put together. Yeah. I've never played a Stradivarius, but, and I can't play a violin. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Me neither. I don't, I don't think it would sound that great if I tried. Can you um, tell us about, you know, one or two of the things that you've made for the band with Python? It's crazy. I can't keep track of it all. There's maybe a hundred programs. Um, I started using GitHub about six months ago, and as part of my learning GitHub and collaboration, open source, mm. I put up a package there and I invited people to collaborate with me. So I think there's about five people, I don't even know where they are from around the world, helping me write a program called New Albums. And what it does is every week it scans Spotify for uh, that whatever new albums have been released and puts all the songs into one of your playlists. And you can set some parameters like the following genres, I'm not interested, so just skip those albums. Um, and then you can have exceptions like, I don't want to hear hip hop, but if it's Kendrick Lamar, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. But by collaborating with these other people, I'm learning a lot about the good practices in Python and also for for collaborative work. Yeah. Well, without further ado, let's hear from the mind behind Python. Guido, could you tell our listeners just a, a little bit about how and why you wrote this language? My God, uh, that would be a long story. I studied math in college, uh, but quickly found out that uh, this new thing called computer programming was much more fun. And I sort of diverted my subject to programming. When I finally, finally graduated, it took me eight or nine years. I got a job as a programmer at a research lab. And my first project was to be on a team. And I spent about three years on that team, three or four years. Unfortunately, as it goes uh, with so many projects, that project eventually was canceled for lack of success. Eventually, in the late 80s, I was tasked with producing a large pile of software uh, and it all had to be written in C. Rivers just explained how much fun that is. I could see that the sort of the software would take me forever to write. And so I thought if there was a better programming language that had more productivity, I could produce all this software in a fraction of the time. And those were, were like often more scripts of the kind that uh, Rivers has also been writing. And so I thought, well, when I'm writing a programming language, I don't want to start from scratch. I want to borrow ideas from other languages. And my main inspiration really was that failed programming language that I had helped implement, say, five years before. Uh, So once I had it sort of the first version working, I could actually fire it up Python, it gave you a command line prompt and you could say print two plus three or things like that, or Mm -hmm. define a function. It could do sort of basic math like you learn in high school, adding numbers, but it could also uh, do text manipulation. And we started using it and a little less than a year after that, we decided that this was actually cool enough to share it uh, with the rest of the world. Now. This was in the early 90s. I think the open source date is somewhere in February 91. 
But the term open source was not actually even invented. The concept more or less existed, but it was known under names like freeware, sometimes shareware, source available, free software. But there was, there, there was like, and so I basically, in the spirit of Monty Python, I, I took a dog license and crossed out dog and wrote in cat with crayon. So what I did was I took the license of some other well-known piece of software, which was issued by MIT. It was, it was like way before the current uh, well-known MIT license though. And I just wrote in the name of the place where I worked instead of Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I, I set up a brief meeting with some director's assistant at the Institute to say, hey, we're planning to uh, release this software to the world. And here's the license that I propose to do. And I think within a day or so, uh, management had decided, oh, sure, that's fine. Yeah, we don't expect that that kind of work would ever be sort of a profitable line of business for our institute anyway. I mean, if, huh. if they had thought that it would have been sort of a moneymaker for them, they would have said, Ah, that license is way too liberal. The license must must say you can use it, but you can't use it to make money for yourself and all kinds of mm-hmm. restrictions, which nowadays we would just say, oh, that's not open source. Right. But those terms weren't invented, but they didn't think that there was any money in scripting languages. Okay. Well, let me ask you, you guys this. How do you explain what coding is to non-programmers? in the abstract. Oh, that's that's a terrible sort of conversation killer if people <laughs> ask me that yeah. at a party because it's like you write code to tell a computer what to do and when I learned programming that was fairly direct. But now mm-hmm. the code is like you don't tell a computer what to do, you tell other software what to do and that other software talks to layers of other software and Five layers deep, you finally get to something called the operating system kernel, which is a very fundamental piece of software that, that is like macOS or Windows, mm-hmm. the, the kernel thereof. And that's the only piece of software on your computer that actually can do anything to the hardware. It can put bits on the images on the screen or actually mm-hmm. the images have, have to be out of individual pixels and it can send messages on the network and it controls the file system where so it, it, it can let you create a file but it's all very very indirect manipulation people developing software could be active anywhere in that stack of layers of software and python is i would say it sits somewhere in the middle it's it's several layers away from the the operating system kernel but it's also several layers away from how people interact with computers like posting images on Instagram or listening to songs on Spotify. Yeah. Does that resonate with your experience of it, Rivers? Uh, I, I wouldn't have thought of all the different layers. I, I, I just would have stuck with uh, his first definition was just telling the computer what to do. Uh, so yeah, telling the computer to do stuff that I don't want to do or I, I can't do, stuff that's repetitive, just 
requires too much tedious work. The computer can do all that, so you just you just got to tell it in a, mm-hmm. in a language it can understand, and it's happy to do it for you. And I want to talk about this kind of uh, communal aspect, which I hear so much about. You know, there's I used to rent some studio space in the back of a hippie bookstore, and I shit you not, they offered no more than five titles. One of them was Wim Hof's book on ice baths, and the other was Python for Dummies. (laughs) And on the topic of Python, the owner said to me, we came for the programming, but stayed for the community. What does that mean? Uh, That's a quote from one of the other core developers, Brad Cannon, who was a computer science student, I think, in the early 2000s. And he checked out this Python community because he thought that there was cool computer science going on and maybe he could get a master's thesis project out of it or something. And then he found that there were all these people talking about very many different aspects of coding, like how to become a better programmer, how to write certain types of code more efficiently, uh, how to write your code so that it's less likely to have bugs, how to use coding tooling. And he just sort of enjoyed that conversation that he was initially overhearing and then participating in. And eventually he ended up on Python Steering Council. So okay. that's, that's quite a career for someone. And we, we have young people joining the community now who, who will probably eventually have sort of a similar career path. Okay. You know, to, to me, I feel like my assumption, and it may be a naive one, is that coding would in fact represent something incredibly tedious. But you're saying it's designed to eliminate tedium from your life. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of ironies like that. Like, sometimes I'll finish like, say, 10 hours of working on this script, and I feel so triumphant at the end of it. And then I realize this was all to save like 10 seconds of someone's <laughs> manual labor. Now the computer will do it. It took me 10 hours. <laughs> yeah. So it's ironic, but I, I still love it. Yeah, clearly there's more to it. You you sort of, and I, I, I do this too, and everyone who is coding occasionally sort of goes down that same rabbit hole. And that is because coding in itself is also an activity that's fun. You can sort of, I don't know, at least it it certainly gets my endorphins up when I sort of identify a nasty bug and fix it. Yeah, well, it's about the journey, not the destination sometimes, right? Yeah. Well, they, they go hand in hand, really. You're not just sharpening your mind, you're also producing something useful. And whether it's useful just for you or for a small group of people around you, like your band, or for everyone who's in a band, which is still a pretty small fraction of the population, mm-hmm. at least from my perspective. Well, actually, I, I know yeah. quite a few programmers who are also in bands. Do you go to their shows? I uh, occasionally do. Yeah, good on you. But these, these, these are usually uh, sort of little-known uh, blues rock bands, it seems. Yeah, well, they all need the attention. Um, you know, earlier Rivers and I were talking and he told me he wondered if there's an analog in your life experience with Python to what it feels like for him if someone says they like Green Day or Foo Fighters better than they do Weezer. 
yeah it it definitely uh works that way for python i've made peace with the fact that there are other programming languages and that not everybody likes <laughs> python and like just like music fans i'm sure have forums where they debate the the merits of green day versus weezer there are a variety of forums where computer scientists and programmers and hackers discuss which languages they like best and why not. And it can get it can get pretty vicious. And I have to <laughs> sort of say to myself, not everybody has to like Python. Clearly, there are enough people who do like Python, and I'm I'm happy with that. And I want the language to become sort of better for those people and become more useful for that community. You you asked before that if I I have sort of ambition, if I had sort of a great plan for Python. And that is sort of something that that feels different. I mean I I loved your story where you said, well, you wanted to write 50 songs and you sort of you you had to do it by by age 23 you wanted to sort of reach a certain level of respect in the music community and i i had very little of that i with python i thought well this might be useful for other people let's see how it works i had done similar things with previous pieces of software i'd written and gotten like zero feedback nobody cared so i was quite used to an anticipating failure. And in the sort of in the early 90s when Python started making the rounds of coding forums, there was plenty of uptake and there was also plenty of sort of negative criticism. But I, I all took that sort of like, well, people can like it or not. And if they like it, I'll keep working on it. And if they don't, maybe I'll uh, continue my career as a programmer uh, working for a variety of research projects over the rest of my life. It turned out that in around 95 things changed a little bit and I got an invitation to uh, move to the United States for a job that basically made Python the center focus of my life. Still Python was was sort of pretty small in the world of scripting languages. There was another scripting language at the time called Perl, which was also invented by sort of a Silicon Valley uh, programmer with, with an unusual personality. And Perl also, just like Python, had a very loyal community of followers and fans. And there were endless discussions between the Perl and Python fans, which language is better. And I met Pearl's creator a few times, a guy named Larry Wall, and I thought, he's a really cool guy. He doesn't have much ego attached to Pearl. His language is clearly the more popular of the two, but we can, we can uh, have a nice dinner conversation together. I still occasionally meet him at, at uh, conferences. But the interesting thing was that, unbeknownst to me, other people in the Python community had great plans for Python, especially for Python in the scientific world. And in the early 2000s, Python just overtook Perl in a dramatic fashion. I never saw that coming. I wasn't, I wasn't pushing that train. That just sort of 
happened and I was very happy for, for my creation, but it, I didn't have much ambition attached to it, which is probably because I was being well paid as a programmer, mm. regardless of the success of Python. That, everything you said, just it makes sense. It seems like there's some similarities to, to being an aspiring rock star. I think for most young bands in the, in the early 90s, we were more goal-oriented, more ambitious, like we got to get a record deal, we got to get more fans to our shows, we got to get on the radio, we got to get a video on MTV. It's like a pretty clearly defined set of goals you're trying to reach and a lot of ego and suffering. <laughs> that, that sounds more like the, the Silicon Valley startup scene. Right, yeah. Yeah, founders of startups always sort of have very concrete timelines and goals. We got to get like product on the market by X date or otherwise uh, the venture capitalist will stop funding. We got to be sort of getting revenue and then the revenue goals become more dramatic and more important. And you got to get your series B and your series C and you got to go to IPO. And I've been a part of that but I've never founded my own startup. I've always been happy being like an employee of a new startup and well, mm. we'll see how it goes. And the first few times uh, we hit dirt. Yeah, and it also struck me, I hadn't thought of this when we set this call up, but I think Weezer and Python were born almost at the exact same time. We, our first rehearsal was on Valentine's Day, 92, but I had written the sweater song probably in the fall of 91, which sounds like right about the time you were doing your first release. That's, that's very close, right? That's crazy. Well, also, I mean, both of you guys, if I may say so, without knowing either of you personally, kind of occupying this sort of legend status in your respective fields, you're also come across as extremely humble. In spite of what you said, Rivers, about Weezer being very ambitious, I mean, you definitely didn't come across that way when I was in, when when you first kind of came under my radar. And still, you know, um, it's, it's just interesting talking to both of you guys because it just seems like you have a very similar disposition and i would imagine as you encounter people in your respective fields they approach you with a certain reverence you know yeah is that is that true are, are you a bit of a rock star guido uh yeah sometimes i'm unaware of it and people sort of take things i i say to them in a very different light than i meant them because i was just making light conversation and they just met sort of this rock star person who replied to their email uh, or something. Do people want selfies with you? Yeah, the last conference I went to, I I sort of broke a lot of hearts by by having a hard policy of no selfies. I do the same because the 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 previous conf the last <laughs> conference before that, which of course was like almost a year before the pandemic, uh, the selfies really got out of hand. Yeah. I just say, no thanks. And they're okay with that? What can you say? I had the good fortune to, um, I was in a band mm. many years ago and we got to spend a few months touring, opening for Chris Cornell on a solo tour. And I happened to be there once when someone asked him to sign a boob. He just kind of smiled and said, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
That has definitely not happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get guys asking me to do that. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, I have one more question. Do you guys feel like as we become increasingly reliant on computers, how important do you think it is for the um, the average user to have some idea of what's going on under the hood? Like, this may be a clumsy analogy, but like, you know, I, it's not unreasonable to expect a owner of a car to know how to change a tire or jumpstart a, a, a dead battery. Is there an equivalent in computers that you think we should be working towards? That that feels to me like a pretty controversial question. They're like, and I've, I've thought differently about this at different times. In, I think, 98 or 99, I wrote a whole proposal for funding computer programming for everybody where I sort of sketched the idea that in elementary school classrooms, everybody would learn coding just like they learn to read and write and do arithmetic. Uh, nowadays, I'm not so sure that that really is the best way to get people uh, to use computers appropriately. I mean, you got to teach people something about what really goes on on the internet, but the the sort of the the things that are important to know are different. Like, how do you recognize false information or stalkers or? Mm. How do you understand the motivations of bad parties on the internet? Why do I get certain types of ads? Why do I get so many ads? And and how to recognize fake news, always that. I think it's really helpful to know the basics, like maybe even more helpful than how to change a tire or, ju or jump a battery. I find that I have an easier time like figuring out how to work my TV because uh, it was programmed by computer programmers so I just know mm. how they think and I think every everything around us will uh, will eventually pretty much have been designed built by computer programmers it, so it's it's helpful to just have to understand the basics of how they think that being said I think things are going to get more and more easy and usable for people who aren't programmers um, to hear about uh, AI software helping people write songs or probably to write your own computer programs just by asking your Amazon Echo to write you some, you know, make you a little program or something. So I think everything's going to get easier. And I guess it's it's not for everyone. And I, when I was any earlier than 45, I would have said, no, I don't want to know if that sounds boring or difficult. It's not for me. So if you're at that state, uh, then it's you might not get anything out of it and but if if you have any inclination check it out it's it's it can be super fun addictive and and powerful and you don't have to have a mathematical inclination that's correct definitely not <laughs> some sort of an inclination towards logical thinking and an attention to details is much more important than math. And what about memorization? No. Uh, no, you can Google the answers to every question you could possibly have mm -hmm. about coding. All right. Yep. Oh, by the way, I, I have one little plug, if I may. Please. Uh, Rivers, Rivers mentioned you can ask your sort of intelligent assistant mm -hmm. to write a program for you. There's actually something like that now that was recently released on GitHub. Uh, yes, I use it all. I use it all the time. It's incredible. GitHub Copilot. Yeah, it's yeah, unbelievable. It, it, it is fantastic. Okay. It's scary. 
uh, <laughs> that too. But it 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 is amazing, <laughs> and I I use it. Well, that's great. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to cover? This will be edited into something wildly coherent. Believe me. Mm, uh, what's your favorite band, Guido? Oh dang! Uh, or your favorite? Fa- <laughs> what's what's your favorite kind of music? I'm a big Elvis Costello fan. I used to listen to a lot of David Bowie. Uh, more recently, and I think this is this is kind of age appropriate. Uh, I've started going to uh, live jazz concerts in small venues. So that 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 couldn't be farther from my musical upbringing. What about Joan Armitrading? You mentioned her. That's right. Yeah, she she was uh, an artist that I greatly admired when I was in college. Mm, cool. Yeah. Great songwriter. Well, very cool. Um, thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate this. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Check out Winter, the latest installment of Seasons, which is Weezer's four EP song cycle, out on December 21st. You can go to Weezer.com for more information. And for the computer programmers among us, please be sure to download the just-released version of Python 3.11 at python.org. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, social media manager is Bailey Constas, and digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Rick and Mary Robinson, Chad Wagner, and Rory Solomon for their help with today's show. If you like today's episode, please tell a friend about the show and give us a review and some stars. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. <laughs>